What I would like to think about this evening is about cultivating a spirit of reverence in our practice and in our life. I think this word reverence at times becomes perhaps very shrouded in religious images and associations. At times, the word reverence may evoke for images of nuns or monks in churches and in temples engaged in some kind of act of worship. And I do feel at times reverence has been associated with particular gestures of respect towards something outside of ourselves, above ourselves, a gesture of kind of devotion to something or someone we consider to be perhaps more holy or more saintly than ourselves. And many of the images that surround this word reverence, I think, are both romantic and idealized that perhaps feel to be very unrelated to our lives living in our world. This practice that we do here in this entire environment has actually a great deal to do with cultivating this spirit of reverence in its truest sense. Looking at it not in a romantic way but looking at the way in which this quality can transform the moment, can transform our relationship to the highs and the lows within our own experience, the way in which this quality can transform our way of seeing both our inner and our outer world. Mindfulness the practice of mindfulness that we've been engaging in here is a practice which essentially says that nothing is irrelevant. That all things, our smallest gesture, our smallest thought, our most intense feeling, the smallest sounds that come to us are all worthy of our wholehearted attention. Mindfulness practice is a, an exploration of communion, of oneness, of dropping the veils and the layers that seem to stand between us and that which we perceive. So that when we see, we see wholeheartedly. When we feel, we feel wholeheartedly. In this kind of communion, there is, I think, probably in its true sense, a religious life, a spiritual life, a life which actually seeks to see into the heart of each moment rather than being deceived by appearances. Silence in itself, in its truest sense, I think, is also an expression of reverence. Because in silence, silence is not an absence of communication, but in silence actually we communicate 
our willingness to listen and our willingness to be present and our willingness to receive and our own willingness to know ourselves and to know each other in ways other than the conventional exchange of information and knowledge. And this silence too, I feel, is very much a part of reverence, of learning how to receive rather than filling our inner and outer world with our labels and descriptions. We see here that this quality of wholeheartedness, this quality of being willingly present without conditions, this capacity to listen, can transform our inner and outer world in very immediate and dramatic ways. In a very real way, to cultivate this spirit of reverence, to cultivate this quest or seeking for that which is sacred, that which we can learn from in each moment, is at the heart of this practice. And in some ways it is very contrary to so many of the, the teachings that we receive in our lives. I think sometimes we, in our growing up, in our learning how to live and be in this world, at times I feel we are in some ways taught that we cannot even afford to have this quality of reverence or to cultivate it in our lives. Many times in our own experience we are taught the wisdom of, of skepticism or through our experiences in the world we learn to be cynical and perhaps mistrustful. At times our experiences in life teach us the, wis uh, the apparent wisdom of being suspicious, of learning, of protecting ourselves, of defending ourselves. And although there may in well, well indeed be times in our life when it is necessary and skillful to know how to protect ourselves, it is also true that in assuming an armor of doubt, an armor of mistrust, an armor of suspicion, in many ways our hearts can become hardened our receptivity can become filtered. And the quality of innocence, which is so much part of reverence, that capacity to see anew and to see freshly and to see without images in each moment, that quality of innocence can be replaced too much by assumed knowledge. Knowledge that is based on conclusions, on assumptions, on definitions and descriptions. Yet despite this kind of conditioning that happens in our lives and the loss of innocence that can many times go with it, it is also true that it actually takes, it seems, very little to touch us in very profound ways. All of us in our lives, no matter what kind of histories we have had, no matter what kind of pain we have experienced and what kind of armor we have assumed, all of us in our lives, we are not strangers 
the very profound levels of intimacy, of communion, of being touched by a sense of the sacred in life. And sometimes these moments come unexpectedly to us. Sometimes we are taken by surprise that we can be walking outside lost in a daydream and suddenly we wake up. Sometimes we find ourselves just listening so totally to the sound of a bird or looking so deeply into the movement of a branch in the wind that we feel that sense of stillness in your day, that sense of stopping in your day. There are times, I think for all of us, when we have experienced that same quality of depth and intimacy in relationship with other people. Moments when we are able to somehow let go of our our demands and our wants and our projections and our images and be there very powerfully in communion with another person and feel deeply touched. There are moments too when we experience that level of communion with ourselves. So all of us have experienced moments here when we are able actually to extend an unconditional openness to ourselves, to let go again of our judgments, our expectations, our goals and our striving, and really explore, somehow touch that, that mystery of just being, that mystery of stillness. There are many things that touch us in our lives, whether it is the setting of the sun, whether it is to see another person giving themselves in in an entirely selfless way to another. Sometimes we feel that quality of stillness in different places, walking into, into temples and places where people really gather together in a genuine seeking for meaning and for depth in their lives. Not everyone comes into Gaia House, you know, shouting good morning and how do you do? Um, we also have at times many moments, you know, when the postman tiptoes through the door, knowing something takes place in this environment which is significant. Those moments when we do touch and feel touched, when we receive and communicate and sense that communion, they are very powerful moments in our lives. They dissolve so much doubt. Often in those moments of communion we feel filled with a very profound sense of trust and guidance and connection. They are very transforming moments in our lives. You know, many people find they come into a retreat, they can go through days of storms to have one moment of stillness. One moment of a profound sensitivity is dramatically transforming. It brings faith, it brings confidence, it brings trust, it brings a greater sense of trust that that which we seek for is actually possibly even not so far away from us. These symbols, these moments in our life are symbols. Sometimes they are transient moments. They are not magical. Those moments when we have of being deeply touched, of moved, they're not magical. It is not that through the power of those moments necessarily 
that all our challenges and all our shadows are suddenly dissolved, but they offer us a greater sense of possibility and meaning and trust in those possibilities. Often what we feel in those moments is a very profound sense of reverence. They are a symbol of that which is sacred. Now, in this practice, we are not training ourselves to be masters of technique, not perfect meditators. We are not training ourselves to have certain experiences or to transcend ourselves. In many ways, the spiritual path is a discipline, but it is a discipline intended to foster this quality of relationship to all moments in which there is trust, in which there is faith, in which there is a sense of possibility, in which there is a quest to understand and see what is sacred in each moment. In cultivating this discipline, it is not so much a question of what we see, but how we see it. It is not a question so much of what we do, but how we do it. Not how, not where we walk, but the quality in which we touch our earth and touch ourselves. Now, I think there is at times a great paradox that we do face in spiritual teaching, in the spiritual path. I think there is no doubt that in and through every different tradition of spirituality, in and through different times, there is a very mystical, fundamental message which is at the heart of the spiritual path. It is a message which speaks about an infinite reality or truth, an unconditioned nature, <clears throat> not touched by birth and death, a quality of sacred in and through all things, which answers our deepest needs of human, as human beings to be free to have a sense of great meaning in our lives and a connection to something so essential to all of us. The words that are used in different traditions differ very much. You know, one tradition will speak of truth, one tradition will speak of God, another tradition will speak of goddess. There are so many different words. And yet another message we hear is that this kind of insight and this essential nature is not the territory of only particularly special or saintly people, and that it doesn't belong to a separate dimension or time. What we are encouraged again and again is to awaken to what is right now, what is truest in this moment, to see through the veils of delusion, the veils of ignorance, that truth or reality, or all of these words we use, it is a quality, a reality that is imminent, not separate from anything, not separate from ourselves. And that in understanding this, the imminence of this truth, which runs in and through all forms, we will understand interconnectedness, we will understand oneness, and we will understand something more also profound than oneness. In the interconnectedness, so much rooted in this path is seeing that whatever happens to another person equals happens, equally happens to me. The joys and sorrows that 
our experience within our world, our experience within all worlds. And to understand or to live a spiritual life is learning how to foster that spirit of interconnectedness, that quality of reverence. Now, it doesn't require grand gestures to cultivate this quality. It doesn't require grand and dramatic experiences to live in a reverent way. All it requires, actually, is the present moment. We don't have to flee to monasteries, shave our heads, don uniforms. We have to learn how to be awake to what is true in this moment. So I'd like to read you a small poem. When the mind is at peace, the world too is at peace. Nothing real, nothing absent, not holding on to reality, not getting stuck in the void. You are neither holy nor wise, just an ordinary man or woman who has completed their work. My daily affairs are quite ordinary, but I'm in total harmony with them. I don't hold on to anything and don't reject anything. Nowhere is there an obstacle or conflict. The poorest thing shines with the radiance of spiritual power and activity. This is one one aspect of the paradox I mentioned. That everything is worthy of reverence, that that which is sacred is right here and right now. The other side of this paradox is more what our eyes and our ears and our minds and our knowing is actually telling us, which seems to contradict this message of the imminence of the sacred in all things. When we look at the world around us, we are sometimes horrified by the degree of hatred and conflict by the seemingly endless capacity in the human heart for cruelty and for ignorance. Because we see the manifestations of, that in, of all of that in our world, in conflict, in division, in violence, in the shadows that seem to haunt our world. And when we look at the amount of anger and the amount of pain and there are forces of greed in our world. At times I think we feel there is nothing here that is worthy of reverence. That this is something to get away from. That it is actually logical and right to be suspicious and defensive. And we may even feel a certain contempt even for a teaching of reverence which we define as a kind of passivity. I think sometimes, too, our minds and our knowing turn to inwardly, turn to our inner world, also gives us a similar message. You know, sometimes we sit here for hour after hour, or walk hour after hour, or hear days after days, and at times it's not it's not that much fun. You know, at times you turn your attention inwardly, and it is true for most people at times they feel deeply embarrassed by what they see happening inwardly. 
you know, we would never like to tell anybody about some of the awful thoughts we've had about other people here, you know, or the horrendous, you know, images we've constructed about other people, and, you know, the way, the projections we've engaged in, the judgments we've, we've taken part in, and even when we're not doing that, sometimes the kind of nonsensical nature of our own minds is, is truly appalling. You know, how many thoughts we have entertained over and over and over again. And to appreciate, you know, to look at our, our thought activity and how many thoughts we've had in a day. You know, how many thoughts we've had in a single day here. And to consider that probably about 98% of them are, are quite irrelevant to anything. You know, make not the slightest difference to ourselves, to our experience, to our world. They just fill us with more knowing. You know, I know this and I know that, and now I'm even more certain about that, you know, and I'm even more convinced about this, and, you know, I've managed to kind of embroider this whole kind of construction. And at times, looking inwardly, you know, at times, too, we feel, well, actually, there doesn't really seem to be a lot here that's worthy of this quality of reverence. But again then too, we are making this grand division. We are making this greatest error of the spiritual path to be deceived by appearances. To be deceived by appearances. To mistake our knowing for truth. Not understanding that we become what we believe ourselves to be. And that in many ways, the what believing in appearances becomes our way of seeing, which informs our relationship to the world. The way that we see, what we believe in, shapes and forms every moment in our life. Shapes and forms our responses to the world, Shapes and forms our sense of ethics, the actions we engage in, the things that we choose, the paths that we follow, what we seek for, what we turn away from, what we deny and what we pursue. In so many ways, the people that we meet, the world that we see, and the reality of our experience is shaped by our own way of seeing, by what we honor and what we believe to be true. If we believe, mistake, a judgment for the truth of ourselves or another person, we live on the basis of that judgment, with rejection or with denial, with aversion or with fear. We have been deceived by appearances. If we honor our judgments as the guiding wisdom in our lives, and at times, if we honor only that which we know as the guiding wisdom in our lives that forms and shapes our actions and our ethics, then actually we have little basis for a life of respect and compassion. Because it is not a life which honors the imminence of the sacred or the true in all things, it is a life which honors appearances and conclusions and judgments. We see the effects of that in our world, 
how easy it is to be seduced by the norms of our culture, which honors gratification, which even honors power, honors aggression, honors rejection. All of this is a way of denying the imminence of the sacred. Now there is something, I think, in all of us, it's why we, we continue here. It is what actually allows us to continue here. There is something actually in us which questions this world of knowing and conclusions and images and judgments. There is a part of us that does not believe this to be true. There is a part of us that no matter how, how much our world seems to be filled with greed and violence, there is a part of us that actually believes that we can touch our world in a different way. There is a part of us that actually trusts that actually we, that beneath our own inner world of conclusions and assumptions and images and judgments, there is something deeper, something more profound that is actually not shaped and formed by past experience and by knowing and by wanting and by rejecting. We yearn and we look in our life to find a greater sense of meaning, to find a greater sense of wisdom and compassion, to discover that which is sacred amidst confusion, amidst conflict, amidst pain. It is what inspires us and guides us in this path. This seeking is actually a gesture of reverence. It is actually an act of respect. It is an act of compassion. It is actually learning to live in the spirit of reverence. You know, when I see people on retreat to come and sit again and again and again and walk again and again and again, and I know sometimes sitting and walking with many shadows and many struggles, feel the profoundest sense of admiration for that quality of courage and integrity an impeccability and trust that returns again and again to be with what is. Something is very profound is happening in that spirit. There is a cultivation of reverence, of learning how to live in a meditative spirit. When I was in America last year, I met an elderly woman who had done many retreats and you know, she just kind of slowed down a little bit in her life. She was in her 70s and, you know, not always in the best of health and um, somewhat restricted, you know, in energy. She really was seeking for some way to, to contribute to her world or to give to her world a sense of, a sense of appreciation and care and a sense of the meaning of her own past. And, you know, instead of going off to a monastery or, you know, signing up to do some kind of service work, what she decided to do was to, it's very strange, she adopted two miles of highway, two miles of freeway, which is actually, it's a fairly common custom in America that you adopt a highway. And in adopting a highway, basically your job is to, is to look after it. You don't pave it. You look after you look after it. You keep it you keep it together. And she said, you know, it became such a wonderful practice for her 
but sometimes it was freezing cold, sometimes it was raining, sometimes it was boiling hot, and every morning she would get up and she would go out to her bit of hungry with her bags, her garbage bags. And she said, you know, I would just walk mindfully along beside the highway, and all of these cars would be zooming past. Everybody was so busy going somewhere, and you know, some people would be talking on their car phones, and other people would be bouncing up and down with their music, and other people would be shouting at each other. And everybody was so busy and so fast going somewhere. And sometimes, you know, little kids would, would kind of laugh at her at the window. Sometimes people would jeer at her. And sometimes people even would throw garbage at her. And she said, this is my practice. That every morning I would go out and I would pick up the garbage. And I would pick up the rubbish. And I would pick up the cigarette butts. And I would pick up the empty cans. And I would pick up the broken glass. And by the time I walked to the end of my two miles, my bags would be pretty full, and then I'd walk back to the beginning of my two miles. And even that area that I'd spent picking up would be again, have all this trash on it. And I'd pick it up again. And I would, she said I would know that when I went home after those two hours, I had left that little piece of earth as pristine and as clear as God gave it to me. She said, and this was my practice. And so it's like the remarkable impossibility of that. You know, it's unending. It's unending. You know, and, and that lack of investment in results and that total indifference to what people thought of her. You know, here's a zany old lady out there again. That total indifference to what people thought of her. Her work was simply to care for this piece of earth and to restore it in some way. For me, what she was talking about was a life of remarkable reverence, a life of remarkable respect. Just this quality of impeccability about how she touched the earth, about how she cared for her earth, and about manifesting in her actions all that she honored and all she felt to be true. We don't need to actually you know, go to monasteries, do huge and heroic things in order to be manifesting this quality of reverence in our lives. We need this quality of integrity and impeccability and courage. Sometimes so many of the saints that we admire, these people who are visionaries who transform our world, they are actually born with no more than we are, simply the capacity to be awake the capacity to listen and to learn and to love what is true. Now think of that in our own path. Think of that life of that old woman in our own path. You know, here we sit, you know. Here comes this thought. We didn't invite it. We just take care of it. You know, here comes this judgment. We didn't invite it, nor do we have to blame ourselves for it. We just take care of it. You know, here comes this conclusion or this projection. We're not particularly interested in harboring it. We just take care of it. We are just taking care of the moment. And in taking care of our moment, we are actually taking care of how we touch our world. You know, there is a wonderful Zen saying that says, to a sincere student, every day is a fortunate day. 
Now, this doesn't mean that if you practice Zen, you know, you're going to have a kind of honeymoon life from higher on in. It is pointing to a particular attitude and particular spirit of living, of not making distinctions, of not making distinctions between what is holy and what is not, between what is spiritual and what is not, between what is worthy and what is not. Learning how to drop those distinctions actually teaches us how to live with a meditative spirit and in a spirit of reverence in our life. When we approach washing our dishes as if we were going to a temple, we have learned some of the deepest lessons of the spiritual life. When we approach our judgment in the same spirit as we would approach a teacher, that we admire. We have learned some of the deepest lessons of the spiritual life. We are exploring the possibilities of each moment, of not living in a world of images and conclusions and judgment. All that this tells us, all that our images and conclusions and judgments can possibly tell us, is the world of the known and the world of fear and the world of grasping to be able to let go, to open into what we don't know, to bring that quality of innocence. Then we are traveling this path in a way that deeply touches us. Teacher once said, a great teacher once said, in making even a hair's breadth of difference, then heaven and earth are set apart. We can see the way in which we set one thing apart from another by saying this is good and not good, this is acceptable and not acceptable. We are living in a world of conclusions which is the parent of conflict and, and division. It takes a great commitment to make no differences, to make no division. It is not a sacrifice of discriminating wisdom. To live in this way of not making judgments is not a sacrifice of discriminating wisdom. We all need to make choices in our lives and to live our lives in a way in which we honor that which contributes to freedom and well-being. But to know the difference between discriminating wisdom and judgment, judgment limits us and discriminating wisdom actually liberates us. There is actually no greater obstacle in the spiritual path than the unwillingness to learn from what is. This is actually what the spiritual path is about, cultivating the willingness to learn from what is. We are learning how to withdraw our projections and our judgments. And learning the way in which this transforms our world and ourselves. Learning how to withdraw our projections and our judgments is actually learning how to step out of division. If we look at a single struggle that takes place in our day here, that takes place in our lives. I believe we understand the way in which that struggle rests upon judgments and conclusions. 
and how much judgment and conclusion rests upon fear. Rests simply upon fear. A fear of being, of being in this territory of not knowing. A fear of letting go. A fear of opening into this quality of not knowing, this quality of innocence in our life. And yet withdrawing our projections and our judgments I fear we learn how much we let go of struggle. How much we let go of struggle. You know, there's this wonderful t-shirt that's produced in California that says, suffering is optional. This is a remarkable revelation. Suffering is optional. I mean, I think, you know, we, we could do well to look at this in our life. Suffering is optional. You know, maybe it's not a life sentence. You know, maybe we've suffered for years. Maybe it can end in the next moment. Maybe it lies, suffering lies within our relationship to this moment and not in the moment itself. What difference would it, how would we treat ourselves if we did not judge or live in a world of conclusions about who we were? If we would have a remarkable capacity, quality of respect for ourselves. How would we live in this world? How different would our world be if we were able to withdraw our judgments and conclusions? And we would feel a remarkable quality of respect, a profound sense of reverence in relationship to our life. In Buddhist teaching, we are asked to explore this curious combination of personal responsibility and letting go. It is a curious combination. I mean, certainly in Buddhist teaching, to care for the well-being of our world, to care for the well-being of others, to care for our own well-being, is really at the forefront of all dharma practice, of all meditation practice. To consciously nurture well-being in all life, in all things. To care for the end of suffering, to care for the end of violence, to learn how to act in a sacred, in a noble, in a skillful way, to learn how in our practice, how to cultivate respect and integrity and honor. To learn how to serve, how to give, how to extend compassion, how to consciously nurture this well-being. This at the total forefront of Buddhist practice. And at the same time, we are asked to learn how to let go. How to renounce. How to be empty. And it is not the letting go of wise action, of wise thought, of wise, wise speech, of care, of compassion. We are not asked to let go of this. What we are asked to let go of is this world of judgments and conclusions, to let go of anger, of greed, of rejection, of denial. Because this is, this letting go is the greatest act of compassion. It is what allows true responsibility to emerge, true responsiveness to what is true. It is learning how to live. This, this combination is actually learning how to live with reverence in our life. There's something I'd like to read to you from at the mind of absolute trust. The great way isn't difficult for those who are unattached to their preferences. Let go of longing and aversion and everything will be perfectly clear. 
When you cling to a hairbreadth of distinction, heaven and earth are set apart. If you want to realize the truth, don't be for or against. The struggle between good and evil is the primal disease of the mind. Not grasping the deeper meaning, you just trouble your mind's serenity. As vast as infinite space, it is perfect and lacks nothing. But because we select and reject, we can't perceive its true nature. Don't get entangled in the world. Don't lose yourself in emptiness. Be at peace in the oneness of things, and all errors will disappear by themselves. It is learning how to be at peace so that all <coughs> errors will disappear by themselves. It is not a question of in this path of creating new spiritual demands for ourselves, of I must be more loving, I must be more generous, I must be more compassionate. To me, it is fascinating the way that it is possible to turn the spiritual path into a new dictator, a new tyrant that says, you know, you're not good enough because you do this, you know, or, or every moment of judgment, every moment of projection becomes a moment of failure. The way that we can turn the kind of teaching into a new form of judge. This path doesn't actually ask us to attempt to refine ourselves into a more spiritually perfect model of who we are. It doesn't make a demand of become compassionate become perfect, become giving, become loving. It asks us to be at peace in the oneness of things. Because this is what attention is. When we give attention, we are one with things. To be at peace in the oneness of things. If we are willing simply to be at peace in the oneness of things, all errors disappear by themselves. Not because we've got rid of them, not because we've overcome them, not because we've transcended them, but that which is untrue does not have the power to withstand that the light of that which is true. So to be at peace just in the oneness of things. Our attention with the simple words, the thoughts, the sounds, the sensations, the sights, the smells, the touches, learning how to be at peace in our oneness with all of the things. The errors disappear by themselves. There is a momentum to this path which is organic. In many ways, it is not so much a question of us meditating. It is much more a question of us learning to get out of the way of our meditation. Learning how to get out of the way. Simply to turn up and pay attention. It is so simple and all errors will disappear by themselves. As long as we remember the simple teaching to be at peace in the oneness of things. Every time we are struggling, it is a good reminder to us. We have forgotten the simple lesson. Be at peace in the oneness of things. And that which we need to see, that which is true, will reveal itself to us. We are simply in meditation, creating an environment which is conducive to wisdom, which lends itself to depth, 
which is inviting of understanding. This environment of silence, of oneness, is that environment which invites a deepening of understanding of that which is true. So our task here is actually very simple. Our task in our lives is actually very simple. To nurture this quality of being at peace with the oneness of things. To remind ourselves again and again. In doing this, in this quality of attentiveness, in this dedication to awareness, in this dedication to communion, we live in all things and in all moments with a profound sense of reverence, the quality of being present. May all beings live in peace. May all beings be free from struggle. May all beings live with wisdom. We have just a couple of minutes quietly together and then we'll have a break. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.